Well, this is the last part in our relationship series, and today we're going to be focusing on the power of words. And I want to start with a verse from Acts chapter 15, verse 32. Uh, You don't need to look that up because I'm going to be reading it from the the, uh, New American Standard Translation. It says, Judas and Silas, and just to point out, this is not Judas, the betrayer of Jesus, Judas Iscariot. That actually was a fairly common name back in those times, at least until the following generation. I'm sure it wasn't popular anymore. Uh, But anyway, it says, Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. So brace yourselves to be encouraged and strengthened. Much of uh, what could be said about the power of words, it can be both positive and negative. Uh, I don't think that I need to tell you that, but I'll just start by saying it. Uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote in uh, the book of James. If you'll turn there in your Bible, uh, it's just past Hebrews before First Peter. Uh, you may have a traditional Bible like I'm using here this morning, or maybe you've got uh, your iPhone or your Nook or your Kindle, whatever. It's all the Word of God, isn't it? And if you came without one this morning, uh, there's a Bible right in front of you in the pew, and the page number is up there on the screen, page 1173. So let me read these words to you. James is talking about the the negative power that our words can have. James chapter 3, starting at verse 3 and reading through verse 12. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. And what those examples are saying is neither can a mouth that is constantly giving out negative words be one that also gives out positive words. So I don't think it's necessary for me to convince you that our words can have a negative effect and and hurt people. We all grew up hearing the words, sticks and stones may break my bones. Did you really believe that even back then? They still hurt, didn't they? When someone called you a name or came up with some surprisingly clever and cruel rhyme to your name, did you think that words couldn't hurt? Let me share with you what I grew up with. (laughs) 
presents the Paul Winchell Jerry Mahoney Show, featuring Knucklehead Smith. That's right, Scotty Waddy Doo Doo. I know you're as impressed with the amount of brain power it took to think up that little gem as I am. Or what about, you know, you've probably had that happen to you, but what about the person that you thought was your friend who said something to you or maybe about you behind your back? Words that cut to your very heart? Those words hurt, didn't they? Or maybe it was a bad review at work or sarcasm from your spouse, or perhaps it was uh, that inevitable, I hate you, from your teenager. Those words all hurt, didn't they? So I don't need to convince you that words hurt. What I would rather focus on this morning is the power of our positive words. And again, I don't need to convince you that uh, positive words can be powerful, because we all know that. Perhaps it was a time when you had failed in trying something new and somebody that you deeply respected said, I believe in you. Or maybe it was your child saying those words, I love you, and you can see it in their eyes. Or that very special person that says, I do. Or perhaps it's your Heavenly Father saying, I forgive you. Those are all powerful words, aren't they? So I don't need to convince you that hearing powerful words will be helpful in your life either. What I would rather do this morning is convince you that while receiving powerful or those encouraging words are powerful, somebody had to think of those words and then say them to you in order for you to be encouraged. Because even if they had thought them and didn't say them, it wouldn't be encouraging because you'd never even know that they thought them. So my goal this morning is to convince each of you to invest yourself in encouraging others through your positive words. In other words, I want you to become encouragers. I want to share with you a couple of examples from the Bible, uh, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. And the first one is of the man named Jonathan. As you remember, when you're going back in your mind over those stories, Jonathan was the prince of Israel. 
He was the one who was destined to become the next king. His father was King Saul, who was the very first king of Israel. And as you would think, the prince would be the one to follow his father in that kingly line, right? And But who was the second king of Israel? It wasn't Jonathan, was it? It was a man named David. So what happened that changed that course? Well, it was King Saul with his disobedient and disloyal heart towards God over and over again that finally led God to say, enough. And you know what God's punishment was? It wasn't removing Saul from the throne because he continued for many years as the king. The punishment was that his son Jonathan and nobody else in the line of Saul would ever reign as king over Israel. Now, everybody knew that. The prophet Samuel had told King Saul that, so he knew. Jonathan knew. David knew, obviously, because he had been told he'd be the next king of Israel. And yet, Jonathan and David became the best of friends. Even though there could have been jealousy between the two, or hard feelings between the two, it wasn't that case. We know that Jonathan was a friend over and over again, saving his friend David from his own father, Saul, who became so jealous and continued with that jealousy until it became absolute hatred that we're told that an evil spirit actually invaded Saul's life and was leading him to these things. Well, that friendship continued until... As a young man, Jonathan was killed in battle. I often wonder if David had invested himself in another friend such as he had in Jonathan, if he would have fallen to those great sins that we read about later in his life when David committed adultery and then arranged a murder. Would those things have happened if he had had that kind of a friend in his life still? Well, obviously, we don't know what would have happened. We were never told that. William Barclay, in his commentary on the book of Hebrews, says, One of the highest of human duties is the duty of encouragement. It is easy to laugh at men's ideals. It is easy to pour cold water on their enthusiasm. It is easy to discourage others. The world is full of discouragers. We have a Christian duty to encourage one another. Many a time a word of praise or thanks or appreciation or cheer has kept a man on his feet. Blessed is the man who speaks such a word. The Apostle Paul wrote the following words in the letter that he wrote to the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians 4.29, he writes the words, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Now, as I read those words, I think this is the definition of encouragement, isn't it? That we would only let wholesome talk come out of our mouths, something that is helpful not for us, but for the building up of other people so that their needs would be met for the benefit of the person receiving those words. Now, how did Paul come up with such a great definition of encouragement? I believe it was because he was the recipient of that kind of encouragement. 
You see, Paul had a great friend. His name was Joseph. And maybe you're wondering, okay, who is this guy, Joseph? I only remember Joseph, the the earthly father of uh, Jesus. Joseph went by a nickname. His nickname was Barnabas. You know why he was called Barnabas? That word actually means son of encouragement. Can you imagine knowing somebody who was such an encouragement to the people around him that people renamed him? He was no longer known as Joseph. He was known as Barnabas. And when we think about Paul, uh, often we skip to the later part of his life when he was a great statesman in the church, when he was uh, the greatest missionary this world has ever seen. But it didn't start that way, did it? Paul started in the exact opposite of that. He was a persecutor of the church. He actually grabbed people out of their houses who followed Jesus and had them thrown into prison. Paul stood by holding the coats of people who were killing one of the early leaders of the church, Stephen. And he had gotten permission from the courts to go out and do this outside of Jerusalem to kind of take his show on the road. And while he was doing that on his way to Damascus, God stopped him, right? Blinded him, actually. And in that time, God himself spoke to Paul and changed the course of his life. And Paul was a follower of Christ from that day forward. And again, we often forget and think, well, then Paul probably uh, went to Jerusalem and impressed them so much that he got sent out on this missionary journey. It's not the way it happened. Paul spent three years in obscurity in the deserts of Arabia, learning from Jesus himself. And when God called him back to Jerusalem... Everybody remembered the guy who had left. They didn't remember the guy who he had become. And so everybody was scared of him. They didn't trust him. They thought it was all a ruse for him to come in and start persecuting again. And who stood up for him? It was Barnabas. Barnabas put his own reputation on the line to say, no, this is a changed man. This is a follower of Christ. You can trust him as much as you trust me. And after a short time in Jerusalem, these two men were sent out together on the first of those famous three missionary journeys that Paul went on. And we often think, okay, yeah, that was Paul and Barnabas going on the missionary journeys, but that's not the way it's written in the book of Acts. It's actually Barnabas and Paul, not Paul and Barnabas, because Barnabas was the leader of that group. He was the one who took Paul under his wing trained him how to be a missionary, encouraged him over and over again. But they also took another man with them, a young man named John Mark. But it didn't work out as well for him. They got to the first stop, and for whatever reason, we're not told what it was, but he bailed on them and went back to Jerusalem. Now, when it came time for the second missionary journey, and they were deciding who to take with them, Barnabas said, hey, let's give John Mark another chance. I think he's grown. And Paul basically said, over my dead body. And they had such a sharp disagreement about this that they they split up. Barnabas took John Mark with him. Paul took a man named Silas with him. And that's how they continued. 
But fast forward towards the end of this story. Paul's in prison near the end of his life. And who does he ask for? He asks for John Mark. He says, he will be profitable to me. He's an encouragement to me. I think the reason why was because of the same reason that Paul became the man he was. Barnabas was building into John Mark's life, encouraging him. Okay, you blew it that once, but that's not who you are. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 2, the writer writes these words, Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. I think that's what Barnabas did. He spurred the people on in his life towards love and good deeds. Pastor and author Chuck Swindoll has said, The lack of encouragement is almost an epidemic. To illustrate this point, when did you last encourage someone else? I firmly believe that an individual is never more Christ-like than when full of compassion for those who are down, needy, discouraged, or forgotten. How terribly essential is our commitment to encouragement. Is there some soul known to you in need of encouragement? A student off at school? A young couple who's up against it? A young divorcee trying to gain back self-acceptance? A forgotten servant of God laboring in some obscure part of the world. A widow who needs your companionship. Someone who tried something new and failed. Encourage generously. Now I'm going to go out onto a limb here. I think that encouraging someone is a great thing to do. It's a blessing both to the person who receives the encouragement and to the person who gave the encouragement. Now, that wasn't the limb. That's kind of obvious. Knowing you should encourage someone, though, but not following through. Now, here's the limb. I believe that's a a sin. Now, let's go to James chapter 4. If you're still in James chapter 3, you just got to go over one chapter. If your app closed, that's okay. Just go ahead and open it up again. James chapter 4, verse 17. And James writes, Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. In other words, if you know that you should do something good, if you know that you should encourage somebody and you don't do it, that's sin. Now perhaps you're sitting there thinking, okay, that's fine, Pastor Scott. You found one little verse out in the middle of nowhere to back up your point. Well, Good for you. You're a student of the Word. You know that you're not supposed to do that, right? So let's back up to verse 11 and read through the end of the chapter, which is that verse we just read, verse 17. So James chapter 4, verse 11. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother judges him and speaks against the law and judges it. Now, pretty much the opposite of slandering someone, and you know what the the, uh, definition of slander is? It's when you say, uh, make a false statement about somebody that causes other people to think poorly of them. So the opposite of that would be then to encourage them, to speak well of them. Some antonyms, going back to your English days, right? An antonym is a word that's opposite of something else. 
you know, like, um, for instance, uh, hot, um, you know, the opposite of that would be cold. And then we have synonyms. That's not what you put on your toast. Uh, that's the words that are similar with each other. So, like, uh, the synonym for hot would be torrid, on fire, Pastor Scott. Okay, I'm just checking to see if you're still with me. That actually would be an antonym, wouldn't it? So, uh, some antonyms for slander, the opposite words of slander, would be honor, praise, esteem, and respect. So, let's go back to the end of verse 11 here. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Again, a near opposite of judging somebody would be to encourage them. Verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. Uh, Cindy and I were here yesterday afternoon delivering some soup for the, the meal today. And as we drove into the parking lot, it was just after the rain had come, it had stopped, the sun was out, and there was this mist all over the parking lot. And my comment at that point was, eh, kind of spooky, you know. Got this, like, English countryside thing going on with the mist going all over the place. But the point of that is that that mist did not last. Probably 10, 15 minutes later, it was gone. That's how permanent mist is, and that's how he's describing what our future is like. So we have no idea what tomorrow holds. We don't even know that we're going to have a tomorrow. So if you're waiting or putting off encouraging somebody until another time, let's say I I know I should encourage somebody today, I'm too busy or it's inconvenient, I'll do that tomorrow. Well, first of all, do I know that I have a tomorrow? I don't. Do I know that the person I should encourage has a tomorrow? I don't know that either. But I don't even know what tomorrow holds. Perhaps, that's what that holds. Perhaps their day is going to be so busy that they don't have time to hear my encouragement. Or perhaps I'm going to be so busy or something's going to happen in my life that I don't, won't have the chance to encourage them. So James is telling us, do it now. You have now. You have today. You don't know that you have tomorrow. You don't know what tomorrow holds. Verse 17 says, If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. And I think that makes my point, that to know that you should encourage someone, or simply even to know that somebody needs encouragement and not give it, That's sin. Well, let's get practical. How do you encourage somebody? Well, if you're in the practice of encouraging people, you probably don't need uh, too much said about this. But if it's been a while since you've done some encouraging, maybe a couple of examples will help. In Proverbs 12.25, we're told, Anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. Kind words cheer us up 
when our hearts are weighed down. So we encourage through our words. And I want to give you a few examples of this. The first one is verbally. You can encourage somebody verbally. You know they need to be encouraged. You go up to them. You say the encouraging words. That's very timely. They need to be encouraged now. You encourage them now. Sometimes I think it's more helpful or uh, sometimes it's just as helpful to encourage, though, through other ways, ways that can be remembered. So that would be through written words. And the first one that I want to share with you would be something that previous generations couldn't do, send a text. Cindy and I have four children. Three of them are in college We often don't know what their school schedule is, what their work schedule is, if they're studying, whatever it may be. And so instead of trying to call them, we send a text. We can encourage them through our written words over our phones. Now that's great. It's Again, it's timely because even though that person is not standing next to me, I can encourage them immediately. But saving those texts, well, if you're like me, um, you sometimes delete a whole bunch of texts that you didn't mean to, right? Also, our words are a little bit less intentional. When your thumbs are flying, sometimes you phrase things a way that you didn't mean to or autocorrect takes over and, and changes it as well. So the next way I want to tell you is through email. It's a little bit more intentional. You're a little bit more careful about your words, and it can be saved. This is actually a photograph I took of my Outlook uh, page. You see where that red arrow is there for encouragement? I have a folder for encouraging emails that I've received that I may want to read again someday. And I stick them in there. They can encourage me more than the one time when the person sent it. But in my opinion, the best form of written encouragement would be through a card or a letter. Uh, because it shows much more intentionality. Now, I'm not talking about a card that Hallmark wrote all the words and you just signed your name at the bottom. I mean, you actually write words in the card or you write in the letter. Now, how does that show more intentionality? Well, I have to have a card or a letter or go get them. I have to find your address. I have to have a stamp. I have to get it in the mail. But even more so is I have to think through the words that I'm going to put on that. When I am... Uh, typing either a text or an email, I have a backspace and a delete button. I don't have one on, the, on my pen. So I have to think through my words before I put them down on paper, which means I thought through my words much more before I sent them. Many years ago, I received a card from a friend of mine. Uh, he was also somebody that I served with on, on our elder team. I was going through a difficult time in my life. Cindy and I had uh, very recently gone through several miscarriages. Uh, I had lost my job. I don't remember all the details, but there were several other things that were going on. And it was just a really rough time in my life. And this friend of mine took the time to write a card to me. And I, I searched for it this week, and somewhere in all of our moves... Uh, I no longer have that card, but I remember uh, that he, it was a card similar to this. He had written on the card here, and then he had an arrow that pointed up here, and he wrote here, and then he said, turn it over on the back, and he wrote more here. What did that tell me? 
It told me it wasn't just a few pithy words or phrases that he wrote down because he felt sorry for me. He wrote examples of how he had gone through difficult times in his life as well. He told me he was praying for me. You know, when I received that card, I probably read through it two or three times that day, probably read through it two or three times a week for the next several months. I even read through that probably 10 or 15 years later, not because I was going through a hard time, but because it reminded me that somebody cared a lot about me, took the time to write that card and encourage me. So we've talked about uh, verbal encouragement, encouragement through texts and emails and uh, letters or cards. But I want to share one more way with you, which I feel is very important, and that's encouragement through prayer. I'm going to share with you another example from my own life. This one goes back about 30 years. Uh, I was a college student. I was working in a, a ministry much like our Awana program called Guys for Christ, and uh, when the kids went out to play, uh, me and the leader of that ministry, his name was Jim Reese, stayed and were talking. And he asked me how things were going at college, probably asked me how my job was going, uh, asked me if there were some things that he could pray for me about. I have no idea what my answers were and what my prayer requests were, but I will never forget the example he set for me. Because after I shared those prayer requests with him, he said, okay, let's pray for it right now. Maybe I had had somebody do that for me before. I don't remember. That's the first time I remember somebody hearing a prayer request for me and saying, let's pray right now, right here, where people could be watching. Afterwards, I, I mentioned that to him, that I had never had somebody do that for me before. And he said that he actually learned that from somebody else and also from learning the hard way. How many of us have told somebody upon hearing their prayer request, say, I'll pray for you, brother, and forgot? We had all the good intentions in the world, right? We were going to pray for that as soon as we had our next quiet time. Because that's the right time to pray for prayer requests, right? And then how embarrassing is it to have that person come up to you a week later and say, I want to share with you how God answered that prayer. And you're thinking to yourself, I didn't even remember that until you just said it right now. How convicting is that? Well, I learned that lesson from Jim probably 30 plus years ago. And I've tried to live my life that way ever since because I know how encouraging it was to me. And I know myself how likely I am to forget to pray for somebody if I put it off. My challenge to you this morning is to become encouragers. Can you imagine how positive and uplifting that this church could be if we all committed ourselves to a ministry of encouragement. You couldn't wait to get here on a Sunday morning. You'd wake up Sunday morning thinking, I can't wait to get there because somebody I know will encourage me, and I'm going to have a ministry of encouragement as well. You could be praying on the way there, Lord, direct my path to somebody that needs to be encouraged. Maybe somebody I don't even know. Give me eyes to see past the, how are you, I'm fine. 
Because we all say those words and very few of us mean it. William Plunkett has said these words, three things that never come back, the spent arrow, the spoken word, and the lost opportunity. Now, the arrow, that's an obvious illustration. You know, if you go out into the field or the forest and shoot an arrow, it's pretty likely that you're not going to find it again. Uh, If I put that in a more modern-day example, would be uh, the shanked golf ball is the lost opportunity, right? You hit that ball off into the fields and the deep weeds, and you might as well forget it. It's gone. What about the spoken word? An unkind word, as much as we might want to retrieve it, can never be retrieved. It's like a tube of toothpaste. You squeeze that toothpaste out, it comes out pretty fast and pretty easy. But you cannot, no matter how hard you try, put toothpaste back into the tube. A kind word, well, we don't want to retrieve those words, do we? And neither does the person who received those encouraging words. It's out there, whether on a card or an email or a text, for us to live over and over again as we need that encouragement again. What about the lost opportunity? When God's Spirit is nudging you to encourage someone and you convince yourself that it's either too inconvenient or that somebody else will think that I'm strange for doing this, especially praying for somebody out in the middle of a public square or in the the church lobby, well, that opportunity is now lost forever. That person that needed that encouragement isn't going to receive it. I want you to turn in your Bibles one more time to Hebrews chapter 10. That's back to the left, just one book. Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to look at verses 24 and 25. I want all of us to read these verses together. So even if you don't uh, have a Bible with you, peek over somebody's shoulder. We'll say these together. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Let's read together. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. 